Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. On the front page of the Republican last Thursday, top of the fold, DA, colon, pregnant woman shot, baby dies after delivery. This by Lewis Feldman. A pregnant woman was among the injured victims in a shooting in Holyoke yesterday afternoon, and authorities said her baby died after being delivered, according to the Hamden DA's office. The shooting took place at 12.30 p.m., just afternoon, near 397 Maple Street, and police have at least three suspects in custody. Authorities said three male suspects were involved in the altercation. The woman was pregnant and brought to a nearby hospital in critical condition. The baby was delivered and needed life-saving medical services, but did not survive, according to a spokesperson for the DA's office. And today's Republican front page under the headline, Enough is Enough, and the subhead, Gun Violence, Holyoke Anti-Violence Group Marches for Injured Mom, Infants Killed by Stray Bullet, Mayor Seeks $1 Million to End the Bloodshed, Bloodshed, this by Jeanette DeForge, more than 100 people led by Mayor Joshua Garcia and his family, and escorted by Holyoke police in cruisers and on bicycles, walked a one-mile route that circled High Suffolk, Maple, and Sargent Streets, at one point, they called out the names of the mother and her infant who died, despite doctors' attempts to deliver and save the baby. We have with us Aaron Vega. Aaron Vega is the longtime Holyoke resident who was for eight years the state rep for the city of Holyoke, the only, one of the only cities that had its own state rep. He was for four years as well a city councilor in Holyoke, and he is now the director of planning and economic development in Holyoke. Mayor Garcia could not be with us this morning, and we really appreciate Aaron Vega stepping in for the mayor. Aaron Vega, you have been a member of the Holyoke community your entire life. You've been an important member of the Holyoke community. This shooting feels different. It feels like there is something going on that needs some exploration and some explication. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand what it feels like in Holyoke these few days after this shooting. Well, how it feels is it, it feels bad, right? It feels, um, it feels extra deep and it feels sort of unbelievable, I think. And so people um, are ha I've had enough, and I think that we've. It's a complex issue, Bill, as you know, and and Buzz, and you guys. And this is. It's not one answer. There's not one solution, and the randomness of this is so unbelievable. I mean, you know, this woman innocently sitting on a bus and a stray bullet, and that's one thing that hasn't happened in Hoyle too much is the stray bullet, the bystander. There's been violence in Hoyle. There's been violence in Springfield. There's been violence all around us, um, but lucky quote unquote, to not have something like this ever happen in Hoyt, this random person innocently gunned down while they're just on a bus or walking by. So it's just tragic. And how do you how do you even how do you even prevent this? I think that's what that's what's grappling with all of us, right? Yes, we want more youth programs. Yes, we want more uh, police on the street, bike patrol, investment from the community. This is one of those galvanizing events that has, has brought the community together, has brought a conversation with the police and residents, is having, um, you know, it's just attention. But how could you prevent something like this? I mean, you have individuals in this world who seem to have very little care for life or anybody else's life with illegal guns walking around, going after people. I mean, the 
it seems that there was this person was targeted from the footage that we've seen from the store. Two people jumped this one individual, and they all have guns. Not, how do you not even, the victim. Someone else was targeted. Someone else was targeted. And so it just gets out of control. I mean, how do you, how do you even prevent this? And I think that's what's, that's what's so frustrating. It's not, it is the gun violence. It's the addiction. It's the homelessness. It's the lack of education. It's all these other issues. But how do you prevent something like this? Well, that's the question, I, of course, everyone has. And you say that the community is galvanized. And I think that is one positive that you can take from this tragic, tragic event. But as you also say, Aaron Vega, it's not simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the randomness of this that just is so uh, appalling in some ways. And that's what makes people feel unsafe. I think there was always a sort of um, comfortable belief um, that people have, whether you're in Hoyoke or Springfield or Chicopee or you know, Roxbury, you know, all these communities, wherever we are, that we know that there's gun violence, that it's just happening there. It's happening between a, you know, something gone wrong. It's, it's targeted. It's, it's, it's isolated in some way. Now there's it this idea. Ga- it might be a member of a gang going right. after a member of another gang, which is. Territorial, tra- right. It's, it's, which is tragic when, when there is violence and there is death, but at least it's understandable. Right. This doesn't have any logic to it. Right. And it makes everyone just feel more unsafe and that sort of tension, I mean, look at you know, all the other news that's happening in the world right now, right? But even other communities in America, that constant tension of living under the threat of violence, that just affects, affects all of everyone's psyche and affects everything else. When you look at a community and at a city, how are you going to prosper? How are you going to invite people in? How are you going to grow a business? How are you going to grow a family if there's this underlying fear all the time? Well, there was a march yesterday led yeah. by the mayor, and there were a number of responses, including uh, more police on the tr- streets, more bike patrols, more more cruisers, more visible police presence, as well as youth programs and the like. But I don't know that that has an immediate effect. Maybe the police will, as the mayor has said to us on this program a number of times, the presence of the police may make people in marginalized communities feel safer, maybe, but it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, which is, I guess, and I'm not really guessing, but I would suggest is drugs and guns, right? I and think poverty and po- yeah, I mean, all, that's that's the, see, once you start getting into it, it gets so complex and so intertwined. So you know, first off, I just got to thank you know people like Priscilla Rivera from City Sports, who really was the heart of organizing this, and people like Jenny Rivera on the City Council, and Izzy this, Rivera. This being the march. This being the march. I mean, they these are folks that are in the community that have grown up in this community. Many of them have come from poverty or come from a violent past, and have you know made those mistakes, but made those choices to, to straighten up and bring their community up with them. And so these are people that I think that are key for us now to reach out to the community, right? It's, it's one thing to have me or the mayor or, you know, all these people come up into a community and say, let's work together. But to have people from the community that have gone through some of these same issues, have gone through the same experiences to reach back into the community, like Priscilla's doing, like Izzy and Jenny and all these people, um, and Jose Maldalavo Vidalez, these people that are like rising up from the community and saying we need to work together. And the police presence is one thing. I think that does make people feel safer. And, you know, we talk to people who own businesses on High Street, you know, Crave and the Colombian Restaurant and La Isa. They want to have that safety. They want to have that. But it's more about having that communication, right? When you have bike patrol and you have that sort of police on the beat, there's those opportunities for conversations to happen. Right now, we know because ironically, the same day that this tragedy happened, there was this conference about shot spot. Uh, shot spotter and all this other stuff. And that's a whole other conversation. I see both sides. But 
one of the things that came up was that there, the police are answering these shot spotter calls, and there's no calls from the community coming in reporting a gunshot. And we should back up. Uh, spot shotter is an electronic uh, uh, communication system that reports based on its algorithms where gunshots have been discharged. And it is, according to most reports, uh, an, an accurate uh, uh, depictor of where the gunshots were. And despite its accuracy, there's still controversy. There's still a lot of controversy yes. about whether, you know, they're, yes. what about their, are these, are these uh, backfires from motorcycles? Are they uh, yeah. uh, fireworks? Are they just wrong? And is it accurate where? And, 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 all and, I, think the, and, I, and I think coming down to the, the crux of the issue is, that, is that the only time police are going to come down is if there's a gunshot? Why aren't they coming down when, police, when people call them? And so people stop calling even when they hear gunshots. So it becomes a circular thing, right? So they're not going to call when there's a homeless person or someone addicted who passes on the street. They're just going to say, I'm not even going to bother. They hear gunshots. Or I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. I, I'm, I'm, you know, we know that there's situations of apartment buildings where gang leaders are entrenched. People don't want to, they may be fearing those ramifications if they call the police. I mean, there's so many layers to it. Well, I think that it's all about trust, trusting yes. the police. So yeah. if you have those personal relationships, if suddenly the, the police aren't just the people driving around their car, they're on the street walking, they're in the restaurants talking to people, they're on the streets, they're at the events, they're, it's building those communities, those relationships. And, and I think that a lot of Hollywood police officers do have those relationships with certain members of the community. So we just need to branch those out and expand those. Not a new idea. No. Community policing. No. And yet it is an idea that seems to be at the forefront of the response, how to have the community and the police be together as opposed to be at odds. And the mayor says, by and large, they are. But the question is how to have a presence that will actually have some kind of a deterrent effect, right? Exactly. And by and large, they are. And unfortunately, it comes down and, you know, people can roll their eyes or shrug their shoulders, you know, million-dollar investment in public safety. Unfortunately, that's what it costs, right? Our police force is down on numbers. There's, there's, a, there's a push to get more recruits in. This is not just, just, not just Hoyoke, right? We see this across the board for public safety. Um, not a lot of people are entering this field. So how do you get that? So there's a push to have new recruits come on. But it becomes – it's a dollar. It's a budget game too. I mean we have normal patrols. We have normal costs. And now we want – we want just like we want DPW to do more. We want fire department to do more. We want the police department to do more. More costs more. Well, Councillor Aaron Vega, yeah. this is um, – you were in the legislature yeah. for eight years. And I'm looking at the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, and it is renewed push for gun bill underway. Yeah. It talks about uh, gun legislation that last year – there was a skirmish yeah. between the Senate and the House, and it didn't advance. And now I am reading from uh, the article in this morning's paper, and it says the updated legislation, and for those who want to write to their legislator about it, it's HD 4607, seeks to rein in the spread of untraceable ghost guns yeah. to update the state's assault weapons ban to limit the presence of firearms in certain public spaces and to streamline the licensing process. As a former legislator, is this enough? Is it enough is an interesting question because will it have an impact? Will it have an impact is a better question. That's the because because most of those initiatives, when you break them out, even gun owners would support a lot of that. The question is, people who buy illegal guns now, just because we put a law in the book saying you can't have a ghost gun, you can't have a gun made from a 3D print, you can't, they're still gonna do it. I, I mean, 
Fentanyl's illegal. It's all over our streets. So is it enough? Maybe. Is it going to have an impact? I don't know. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Senator Paul Mark was on the show, and, and he said this, it's not really a crime price, crisis. It's a public health price, crisis. Mm. We have to understand in this case, that woman and that baby, it's a public health crisis. Exactly. So therefore, more funds should be put into getting those caseworkers on the street with police officers that come together, getting more patrols on the streets, getting more uh, addiction beds open. That's how we should be approaching this issue, not just by changing laws on, books, on guns that are already illegal or things that are already illegal. So, Aaron Vega, I would be interested to know your thoughts with regard to the fact that Holyoke has had a large number of homicides this year, uh, unexpected and inconsistent with past years, but there has, I don't want to call it a spike because I don't know if it's, it's, it's an outlier or not. It's also true in Springfield, a large number of homicides, uh, including one very similar to this situation in Springfield. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not this is a Western Massachusetts issue or whether this is singular to the cities of Holyoke and Springfield. What can you tell us about that, or what can you I would, deduce? Yeah, that? I would deduce two things, I would say. Is one, we know, whether it's even at the local level or statewide, or when we look at this area, we also have to think about the drug trade that comes from New York through Connecticut, through Western Mass, up to Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, this pathway. So the two things, even at the local level, when we put in pressure on certain areas that we know are hot, and arrests are made, patrols are there, changes happen, it doesn't stop the business. This is a strong black market business, right? Right. And, 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 and it so it just moves down the street. It moves to another location. Right. It has three other places to go anyways. So if that same thing is happening elsewhere along this corridor, if you will, all the way up, if things are getting more, let's look at Worcester. Worcester's got more economic development. It's got more people moving there. It's got more investment, less crime. Well, the crime didn't just go away. It moved. So are they setting up shop in this area? Are things becoming more condensed? There, is there more focus from the black market and the gun dealers and the drug dealers to focus more in this area? And that's going to create more tension. There seems to be, from other conversations that I've been in, there seems to also be a lot of territorial conflicts going on in Holyoke and Springfield. Now, whether that means certain gangs are rising in power and others are losing power or new ones are coming to this area, again, I don't know. But that seems to be the two factors. One is other forces driving that business in this area and those conflicts in this area. And again, as more people are coming to, I mean, as you go back to poverty and you go back to all these issues of what's happening, why do people get drawn into gangs? Why do people get drawn into the drug market? Because of opportunity. Less opportunity out there, more opportunity in those situations. More people are coming to that. And mixed with somehow the societal sort of breakdown, if you will, about this lack of, lack of life, lack of respect for other people's life, and this ability to carry guns around and think that that's okay, you know? We're speaking with Aaron Vega, who is the Director of Planning and Economic Development in Holyoke, eight years as a state rep, four years as a city councilor. We'll continue our conversation with Aaron Vega right after this. Don't take your guns to town He laughed and kissed his mom and said This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem, using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion, and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Aaron Vega, the Director of Planning and Economic Development for the City of Holyoke, longtime state rep, longtime city councilor as well, has lived his life in Holyoke. We're talking about the recent shooting. I'd like to go back to one thing that you mentioned uh, in the earlier segment, if I might, uh, Aaron Vega, and that was the report, ironically, that occurred on the same day as the shooting that we've been discussing. And that headline in the Daily Hampshire Gazette was Chief, Dateline Holyoke, Chief, please report gunfire. Shot spotter system reveals how many guns are fired, but few report hearing them. And I'm wondering what you make of that irony. I think it goes back to, as a community in certain neighborhoods, why call if no one's going to come, right? If I've called before about a break-in or I've called before about someone trespassing or I've called before for what I thought was a gun or whatnot, and no one shows up for 10, 15, 20 minutes, which we hear, and I'm not saying it's true or not, right, but we hear that that happens. Why am I going to risk calling when I do hear a gunshot? Because there may be other ramifications locally. Or maybe it's not a gunshot. Or maybe it's not. But, but and I don't it, know exactly where it is. And if I come see to... it, I don't want to get involved. I mean, there's, I mean. But it, it might be, Aaron Vega, more than I don't want to get involved. We uh, earlier covered a Dusty Christensen report, um, a survey over a 10-year period of 91 complaints, I believe, against the Holyoke Police Department that went unrecognized by Holyoke and by the police department. Out of those 91 complaints, I think that there were two actions taken. Both were private. 
One was a certain amount of training, and the other was a private rep- reprimand. And some of these were like, I was grabbed out of my car, I was beat, you know, really horrible kind of stuff. And I wonder about, I, I just want to go back to that trust issue, because some people, it might not be that they don't want to get involved. It might be they're afraid of the police. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we talk a lot about that with young people. What's the young people's first interaction with police? You know, if it's a school situation and they're pulled out of school and expect, I mean, that, that's a negative impact, right? And so that, that okay, can be life. Lo- their life. That can be long lasting. We talked a lot about that when I was the legislature talking about reforming school uh, discipline issues. Um, I think that, I mean, that's why, I mean, that's why Mary Garcia was able to get an audit done to the police, right? I mean, let's, let's, have, let's have professionals come and look at him. I'm sure that Dusty did a great job. He's always been a good reporter and you know, he does his facts. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to defend or, or condemn, right? I mean, we know that there are many officers, not just in the Ohio Police Department, but in the institution that are great people and try to better the community. And we know there's a lot of people that into that field that are probably the bullies in high school right? and have that same mentality and are, you know, come from that maybe this new sort of extreme conservatism, uh, Trumpian sort of mentality. So you've got those two dichotomies in a police force dealing in a community that has poverty, that has you know, open-air drug sales, that has mental health issues, that homelessness. And again, these guys are trained in one aspect. And now we're telling them, well, we want you to be a community member. We want you to try to look at community police. We want to look at things differently. And it takes a while to change that, that, change that mentality. What can the city council do that it's not now doing? Oh, well, <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think at this point, I think two things. One, you know, be present. I mean, not all the city councils were at the march yesterday. I think having, you know, that presence to let the, everyone know that, the whole, that this is not just a downtown Hoyoke issue. This is not just a Hoyoke issue or a Springfield issue. This is a national issue. This is, you know, the, the homelessness, the, the mental health, the addiction, the drug sales. This is not just Hoyoke, right? So having us stand together. So it's Ward 7 and Ward 1 working together. And I hope that the city council will work with the mayor in allocating funds. You know, I mean, that's, that's their reduced responsibility to find out how do we get the funds to address this, to have the mayor's plans, to have more police presence, to have those communications, to have investments in youth. How do we get that done at a local level? Hopefully with the state support, but I think that the city council have those two roles, to, to be present, uh, but also to hopefully not be an obstacle, but help find, figure out how we can invest in the, some of these uh, initiatives that the mayor and the chief want to put forth. We've mentioned uh, Springfield. We've mentioned other cities in Massachusetts. You've mentioned the nationwide problem, and all of that is true. One of the problems is the prevalence of these ghost guns. And one thing you said really struck me, Aaron Bagan, it was that there's no simple solution. And the mayor of Springfield was saying, well, he had a plan last week, and it involved people turning in guns. Well, guess what? The people who are using the guns aren't the people who show up to get a $50 gift certificate for turning in their guns. And the other was, we'll start some more youth programs. Well, the the people who are probably going to those youth programs, maybe they'll be prevented from getting involved in violence. uh, But the people who are involved in gangs are not the ones who are going to show up for the youth programs. And by the way, this the, the the data is that these are not young people who are doing the shootings. These are people in their 30s. No simple solution. So how do we make people feel, how does the city make people feel more secure and safer more quickly? I think two things. One, I think about what the Hoyle Safe Neighborhood Initiative does and their work on creating these events and creating these spaces where people can come together. And it's usually to support the kids. And there's been events 
And, you know, Eddie Case from the Sheriff's Department, who's an amazing force to do this work, you know, we've been at events, the Three Kings type events, you know, community events, uh, the back to school events, where known gang members are there with their kids, with police officers giving out bikes, and, you know, it's a safe space, and hopefully that starts to change some minds, right? So if you're involved in illegal business, in illegal trade, you're involved in a gang, maybe you can start to see a different way, right? I mean, so creating those spaces, I think, is important for a community to do. And it's hard, but I think creating those spaces is, is one thing. The other piece is, you know, we talked about all the changes that's happened since 2016, since that year where Hoyok had no murders, right? What are all those external factors that are going on? And if someone's in the basement making ghost guns, the people who are buying those ghost guns aren't also buying legal guns. So how do you, so the best legislation isn't going to change that. It's going to be enforcement. It's going to be police having enough capacity to take on all those tips that they get, all those unanswered 90 calls and all those other things that happen and follow up on them. You know, we had, we've had issues in other parts of the city with people having guns, right, and having lockdowns in their house and shooting at people. It's like this is, this is not just downtown. It's not just Hoyoke. But it's those systemic issues that we have to address. Youth programs, yes, to avert the next generation. But you're right. It's people in their 30s and 40s that have been involved in this drug trade or involved in gangs for 10, 15 years that are at a certain mentality that I don't know how you change. I hope there's alternatives besides locking people up, but it's how do you make someone turn around? And I think I don't have the answer for that, but I think when I look to people like Izzy Rivera, who's been through this stuff and has turned his life around, has a family, he's invested in his community, he's now a city councilor, you know, but, you know, was at a time where he had illegal guns and did time for that, and but he's found a different path. So those kind of examples hopefully can be multiplied in places like Holyoke and Springfield. Let's leave it there. We have been speaking with Aaron Vega, Holyoke resident for his entire life, someone who loves the city, believes in the city, sees a bright, potentially really bright future for the city. And we really appreciate your time and your insights today, Aaron Vega, who is the Director of Planning and Economic Development. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Bo. Thank you, Bob. And I, I really hope that people continue to support, you know, Holyoke. And, you know, even this weekend, as we have a lot of events going on, it's it's we're going to make it as safe as humanly possible. I hope that people come and continue to support our community. Right. And this event is not Holyoke. Right. This event is an exception, but it is just a tragic one. Yep. Thank you, Aaron. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Get anywhere with your Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst could be getting a new five-story building downtown. Developer Barry Roberts is proposing the mixed-use building on two parcels on South Pleasant Street. Part of the plans would include removal of the rear L of the former Hastings building, which has been used for storage for more than a century. According to the Gazette, Amherst College has plans to lease the Hastings building and open a college retail store. An October 12th hearing is scheduled with the Historical Commission to talk about demolition of the current building. Dozens of healthcare workers walked the picket line outside of Cooley Dickinson Hospital on Northampton Friday. Members of the Union 1199 SEIU held signs and chanted as they rallied outside the hospital. The union said they've been working for all of 2023 without a contract. A vehicle rollover on Route 5 in Bernardston Saturday night left one woman with minor injuries. Route 5 in the area of 546 Brattleboro Road was temporarily closed when Bernardston Fire and Police Departments responded to the vehicle rollover at approximately 8.45 p.m. 
The town of Athol is receiving state aid to help fill vacant storefronts. Their central commercial district, which runs north and south on Main Street, holds approximately 20 storefronts that have been vacant for at least a year. In an effort to fill those storefronts, the town's downtown vitality committee worked with the assistant planner and grants administrator to bring in grant assistance in the form of a rent rebate grant to help with renovations, equipment, and storefront improvements. The town approved a $20,000 match for the state-funded grant. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy. Highs 58 to 62. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows 38 to 42. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny. Slight chance for a shower. Highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. Cooperatives are locally owned and controlled. The members own it or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. When you bank with UMass Five College Credit Union, you're supporting people in our community and achieving their goals and dreams. That's because UMass Five follows the cooperative model. Your deposits turn into local loans, home, auto, and small business. Bank the cooperative way with UMass Five. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our Black in the Valley segment with UMass professor Amilcar Shabazz, who has with him and us today a very special guest so that we can observe and celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Professor, please, the pleasure and honor of this introduction is yours. And indeed, it is an honor. Justin Beatty is someone I've known uh, for a number of years now through my living um, here uh, and, and also working at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's been doing outstanding uh, work uh, in this region and throughout the community. He is of Ojibwe, Saponi, and African-American descent and is a powwow singer, powwow MC, artist, and cultural educator. He holds a bachelor's in indigenous policy, culture, and art 
through a self-designed curriculum at UMass Amherst and is the founder of the Odenong Powwow, an annual Native American cultural gathering held the Memorial Day weekend uh, in Amherst. Uh, so welcome to our show to talk the talk to Black in the Valley, Justin. Look, Rich, thank you uh, for having me. It's an honor to be here. You know, today is um, a day off for many people, not just here in uh, in the Valley, but uh, throughout the United States. And um, indeed, here in Massachusetts, there is legislation uh, uh, up on Beacon Hill to change what the official name of the holiday today is. Uh, and this this fight involves our very own Senator Joe Comerford uh, mm -hmm. uh, and others working on this matter. But but before really getting into all of that, this being Indigenous Peoples Day, how are you feeling? What comes up for you? What are, how are your um, are your ancestors uh, coming to you? What 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 what's coming up for you today, Justin? Um, you know, it's it's a very powerful day. Um, in terms of the statements that are made not only by indigenous folks, but by allies and even by folks that are on the other side of the argument. I mean, it's a, it's a contentious issue for some folks, the changing of uh, the idea behind why we should celebrate this day. Um, I have a lot planned for today. I'm, after speaking with you, I'm heading out to Indigenous Peoples Day in Newton and then leaving from there and hopefully making it over to the Hassanamisco Band uh, of Nipmuc is having their powwow um, on their res in Grafton, Massachusetts. Uh, and I'm hoping to get over there for a little bit. Um, it comes up for me in a, a myriad of ways um, Self-reflection is, is a big portion of this, right? Knowing uh, the various indigenous people's histories uh, and how something like naming a day after such a polarizing figure um, has had and contributed to erasure of indigenous people, um, a, a loss of, of self-respect, a loss of external respect. Um, you know, a lot of the history around indigenous people in this country has been changed to suit a political narrative. And so much so that it's now just kind of become the standard for a lot of people. Most people are walking around with sort of an eighth grade understanding of who and what indigenous people are. And they're completely happy to argue with somebody who lives as an indigenous person every day about what is or what isn't. So as a day for self-reflection, it really allows me to um, sit and consider, like, what have I learned about other indigenous people this year? What have I learned about myself? How can I celebrate our histories collective and in individually? Um, what do I want to do with my life and my day as an indigenous person to honor the ancestors, to honor our histories that have been hidden in some ways, completely erased in others, and the ones that are being reclaimed? Um, so th those are the kinds of things that come up for me in a day today. So Justin Beatty, I would be interested to know a number about, more about a number of things you just mentioned. One is the powwows. What is a powwow? Uh, so a powwow is a social gathering, uh, for the most part, of indigenous people where we get together to celebrate 
who we are as indigenous people. Um, it's kind of like a cultural festival in some regards. There's usually traditional dancing, um, traditional music, traditional foods, uh, traditional craftspeople and contemporary craftspeople getting together to interact and be who we are in other spaces. Um, it's an opportunity for young people to see and connect with culture. It's an opportunity for older people to see and connect with culture, rekindle family ties and friendships, uh, to see how the various indiv uh, individual cultures are evolving. Um, you see that through what are the new colors that are being used in traditional clothes, which we call regalia. What are the new materials that are being used? Um, how are the songs evolving? How are the songs changing over time? All while building on the foundation of traditions um, and, and keeping certain protocols and behaviors that act as a thread between our ancestors, ourselves, and our descendants in the future. Um, they're open to pretty much everyone. If you hear about it, it's open to the public. The ones that you're not <laughs> going to be allowed to go to, you're not going to hear about. So, Well, tell me this. Uh, I remember as a kid hearing that rhyme in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and because this land need, needed discovering, uh, it is, of course, a uh, insulting uh, rhyme, but it is, in fact, the story that a lot of people in America still hear and still believe. Mm -hmm. Calling today Indigenous Peoples Day is a reaction to that, and I'm wondering whether you feel as a person with uh, uh, Indigenous person lineage and ancestors, whether you have experienced, felt, or believe there has been a real change in how the country views uh, Indigenous people. Uh, I do believe there's a, a a real change. I think a thing that most people outside of the Native community, for whatever reason, just don't consider, is that right now we have more Indigenous people that have gone through the education system and risen to uh, the top tiers of their fields. Um, and so that visibility has changed, right? We have senators, we have the department, you know, head of the Department of the Interior, the U.S. Treasurer is uh, from Mohegan down in Connecticut. Um, we have tons of professors and educators that now have the opportunity to redirect the information that young people are getting using the methodologies that have been created by Western education systems. So it becomes a bit easier overall to get that information out because it's peer-reviewed. It's gone through the process that non-Native people have established as this is how we define what is um, correct in terms of education and information. Um, with the advent of the internet, information gets out a lot more quickly and people who are determined to actually do research can actually research quicker, more in-depth, 
and more consistently. They can interact directly with indigenous folks that are also creating databases about our traditions and histories and get the information directly from us. So you're seeing this change. It's slow, you know, progress is incremental. Uh, you're seeing this change. You're seeing more native actors. You're seeing more native TV shows, radio shows, podcasts, um, professional entertainers. And like I said, you know, we're, we're not just, um, you know, traditional dancers and, and singers. We're your principal, we're your bus driver, we're your, your doctor, we're your, uh, you know, your cashier. We're in every corner and aspect of modern life and so now that people have the opportunity to see us in more public ways and learn about us in through the education system in a more um, prevalent way people are starting to see us more you know before it was kind of like if we didn't have on our traditional clothes if we didn't have on our regalia if we didn't have a feather in our hair and a turquoise necklace people wouldn't necessarily even think oh is that an indigenous person they go oh is that person you know latino hispanic are they black are they this are they that it just wasn't in the forefront of their mind to consider that this might be an indigenous person so these sorts of things have changed you know are changing drastically the fact that i'm even able to be here on this show to talk about it is a sign that things have changed over time i'd be interested to know because emilcar uh, shabazz and his introduction of you noted that you have ancestors from two different uh, uh, indigenous nations or tribes. And I'm wondering whether you identify with one or both or how you reconcile. Those are somewhat different traditions. Yeah, um, I actually have more than that. Uh, you know, a, a fair amount of Native people um, married into other tribal nations. Um, you know, it was a consequence of a number of things. Um, the times, location, people moved from one place to another place for work, and you look for comfort in finding familiarity, and people would, you know, meet and marry. Um, powwows are known for being a place where people are meeting indigenous people from other uh, tribal nations and having the chance to interact and learn and grow together. Um, so, you know, what I've had access to over the course of my life in terms of um, my own family's tribal histories and cultural uh, education has varied. It's depended on where I lived and who I had access to. Um, my father and my father's mother uh, were Cherokee and Choctaw from uh, Atoka, Oklahoma. Um, and then my uh, on my mother's side, my grandmother's family is Ojibwe from Canada, and her father's side was Saponi from North Carolina and Virginia. They met in New York, uh, you know, and so um, it, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon to meet folks that have mixed heritages. You know, indigenous people have had uh, a myriad of tribal interactions, tribal commerce, um, tribal governance that has interacted with the groups around them and groups far, far away from them. Uh, case in point, if you go to some powwows here in the Northeast for East, what is what's called Eastern social dancing, there's a dance called the alligator dance. And there's not alligators here in New England, but what it is is folks. Hopefully we'll pick back up. 
We will. We'll, we'll, we'll continue this conversation. There we are. There we are. Justin, Justin Beatty, you want to finish that sentence? You would cut out there just for a minute. Yeah, uh, I was just saying there, there was travel between folks in the southeast and other parts of the country, including New England. And so one of the things that came out of that was uh, an alligator dance that's done here in New England. And so the interaction between tribes being so great, you, you just have people that married into different tribal nations. We are going to continue our conversation with Justin Beatty and Amokar Shabazz right after this. I want to bring up this question about the United States government measuring percentage of blood in a person's lineage to determine what nation, according to the United States government, they can belong to. We'll be right back. the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan. Subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our Black in the Valley segment on this Indigenous Peoples Day with Professor Amokar Shabazz and Justin Beatty. Uh, Professor Shabazz, the microphone's yours. Buzz, you know, uh, Justin, in the spirit of self-reflection, I think about my own background with uh, Indigenous culture, Indigenous people. Um, I grew up in Southeast Texas. And um, in middle school, they took us, we thought we were going to a, on a field trip uh, to uh, learn about the Alabama Cushata tribal nation of, uh, of Texas, one of three federally recognized uh, in Texas. 
And instead, it mostly became a trip of the big thicket. I never quite, I don't recall now why it became more of an environmental big thicket trip and we never got to see any of the Alabama Cushada people. But, um, but at any rate, that's, that's where things started. College at uh, University of Texas at Austin, I got a little more knowledge. It was the 70s, so I was up on cases like Anime Aquash and, and the Spirit of Crazy Horse, Leonard Peltier, and fighting for the release of Leonard Peltier, which is still still an issue. But when we come to this awareness, do you think things like Indigenous Peoples Day help promote that awareness? And, and do you support the efforts that are going on to officially change it from Columbus Day to Indigenous People Day here in Massachusetts and beyond? You know, for me personally, I do believe that it does uh, make a difference because it gets people talking. There's people to have conversations that they might otherwise not have. The average student between, uh, you know, kindergarten and 12th grade gets about 18 semester hours a year on Indigenous people between now and Thanksgiving. The rest of the year, really no conversation about Indigenous people. In fact, people shift their talk, they're talking about that period of the early period of time of American history, colonial history, to this time of year. Um, and so getting people to just even have one more conversation has has some value, right? Um, both sides of the argument. You need to talk about whether you like it or not, as, as difficult as it can be, because somewhere in there is the resolution. Um, I completely support the change. I completely support change. And I think that there were you know, I, I have some Italian American friends, and they're, you know, their um, their concern is erasure for them, right? And saying, well, you know, this is the person that we have, and I don't really have an argument for them, but I offer there are far better choices of Italian history and heritage than Christopher Columbus. The man himself was sent back in change because of what he had done, how horrible it was, even for a time that we consider barbaric. You know, his his peers at that time considered it barbaric. So I think the change in even in just that regard is important. I think um, giving young indigenous people that still to this day, we don't necessarily have as many um, public and mainstream figures to look to to give us a sense of pride the way many other communities do in the United States. Um, so many of our figures are considered historic and are from so long ago, you know, and that's the part of the agenda of the government to sort of suppress native title to the land and history and keep people from understanding what really happened so that the, the power structure stays the same. Um, I am really glad that here in Massachusetts folks are working to change that. I mean, when you learn about American history in the United States, it starts here in Massachusetts. And I've always felt that because of that, um, the state should be at the front of, uh, you know, American indigenous history, indigenous policy, culture, art. Like, you know, UMass has a prime opportunity to really kind of lead on that. And at one point it did. So we, cha we changed the seal recently, the official mm -hmm. logo, getting away yep. from the state seal. And of course, we still got the state the state seal to deal with, but UMass ought to be leading, Massachusetts ought to be leading. You know, and my hope is that going forward, um, we're able to just find ways to, like if we really are a country of, of a mix of people, 
we really need to find ways to start respecting each other. And and this is one of those ways. There it is. Justin Beatty, we really appreciate your time. We can't wait to have you back on the show. Amilcar Shabazz, we thank you so very much for being with us and for bringing Justin Beatty with us to help us observe and understand Indigenous Peoples Day. Before we go, we want to express to you our deepest sympathies and condolences at the passing of Demetria D. Shabazz in September. She was a brilliant person. She was a contributing member of this community. She is someone who was revered. We know what a tremendous loss this has been for you because we understand what a tremendous loss it has been for our community, for everyone in Western Massachusetts. We want to thank you for your time and insights and for being with us. And we want to thank her for all she has brought to all of our lives. We will do an in memorials service, a commemoration of her contributions on another Black in the Valley show coming up soon. Thank you so much, Professor. We really appreciate her and you and our love to you and your family and to her. Thank you so much. And thank you, Justin, for joining us today. We'll have to have you back for sure. My pleasure. Thank you all for having me. Enjoy. It's our annual co-op show, and live from River Valley Co-op, we'll be speaking with folks from Co-op Power in Downtown Sounds, Dean's Beans Old Creamery Co-op, Greenfield Farmers Co-op, Our Family Farms, the UMass Five College Credit Union, Real Pickles, Valley Cooperative Business Association, and the River Valley Co-op. All this Wednesday on Talk the Talk. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, Buzz Eisenberg. Weekdays at 9. And again at 4. WHMP, News, Information, and the Arts. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We begin with Americans killed in Israel, which has announced what it calls a complete siege on Gaza after Hamas weekend incursion by land, water, and air. Correspondent Cammie McCormick begins team coverage. A State Department spokesman says nine U.S. citizens are among the dead. He says the U.S. has also confirmed there are unaccounted for Americans, and officials are working with Israel to determine their whereabouts. The focus is now shifting to hostages as well. The administration does expect there may well be Americans among them and will offer support and expertise on how to address the situation. Israel's military is scouring the south for Hamas fighters as tanks pound Gaza. CBS's Holly Williams from the southern Israeli city of Sidorot. Israel will settle the score with anyone who harms even a hair on the captives' heads, said Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's vowed to turn Gaza into an island of ruin. That's the sound of people in Gaza being pulled from the rubble after a new round of Israeli airstrikes. CBS's MTS Tayab has more from Tel Aviv. The death toll on both sides has reached around 1,200. Today, Israel's defense minister ordered a total blockade of Gaza. No power, 
food, or fuel. Major U.S. airlines have suspended flights to Tel Aviv. They observed a moment of silence for the new war at the New York Stock Exchange this morning. Rescuers in western Afghanistan are scrambling to pull survivors and bodies from the rubble after a powerful 6.3 earthquake that flattened 20 villages Saturday. The Taliban says at least 2,400 people were killed. The World Health Organization says two-thirds of the hospitalized are women and children. Here in the U.S., an autopsy has found the death of a 62-year-old church deacon who was electronically shocked by a police officer. A homicide. CBS's Jim Crisula. Johnny Holman became unresponsive on August 10th while being arrested after a minor car accident. An Atlanta police officer tasered and handcuffed him after Holman refused to sign a traffic ticket. The city has since changed its policy to let officers write refusal to sign on a citation instead of arresting someone who won't sign. There's another massive Powerball jackpot up for grabs tonight. They're getting larger and larger and larger, but you can't spend all that money. Tonight's prize is an estimated $1.5 billion. That's the world's fourth largest lottery prize ever, after rolling over for 34 consecutive drawings. The Dow right now is down three points. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. Oil-producing nations have a new look at global demand over the next... For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst could be getting a new five-story building downtown. Developer Barry Roberts is proposing the mixed-use building on two parcels on South Pleasant Street. Part of the plans would include removal of the rear L of the former Hastings building, which has been used for storage for more than a century. According to the Gazette, Amherst College has plans to lease the Hastings building and open a college retail store. An October 12th hearing is scheduled with the Historical Commission to talk about demolition of the current building. Dozens of health care workers walked the picket line outside of Cooley Dickinson Hospital on Northampton Friday. Members of the Union 1199 SEIU held signs and chanted as they rallied outside the hospital. The union said they've been working for all of 2023 without a contract. A vehicle rollover on Route 5 in Bernardston Saturday night left one woman with minor injuries. Route 5 in the area of 546 Brattleboro Road was temporarily closed when Bernardston Fire and Police Departments responded to the vehicle rollover at approximately 8.45 p.m. The town of Athol is receiving state aid to help fill vacant storefronts. 
Their central commercial district, which runs north and south on Main Street, holds approximately 20 storefronts that have been vacant for at least a year. In an effort to fill those storefronts, the town's downtown vitality committee worked with the assistant planner and grants administrator to bring in grant assistance in the form of a rent rebate grant to help with renovations, equipment, and storefront improvements. The town approved a $20,000 match for the state-funded grant. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. For today, with a mixture of sunshine and clouds, it'll be breezy. Highs 58 to 62. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows 38 to 42. And the like for Tuesday, partly sunny. Slight chance for a shower. Highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie. Uh, yeah, and Mickey and the Duke is here. Welcome to the show. It is fall, it is beautiful out. It's going to be 38 degrees or lower tonight. It's playoff season. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And with us is Duke Goldman talking baseball. Duke, um, before we start talking about the playoffs, uh, we all suffered a loss of a couple of giants recently. Yes, well, we lost, we lost an Oriole and we lost a Red Sox player. So I'll start out with Tim Wakefield, who passed away of brain cancer at the age of 57, such a young age. And it's such a tragedy. Tim Wakefield is a Red Sox hero. Um, you know, overall, his career was only mediocre. He did manage to win 200 games, which is not a small feat. But he had a 4.4 lifetime earn run average. He was, a, he was a journeyman player in a way, except that he played for 17 seasons with the Red Sox. And he did everything the Red Sox asked him to do. He started. He was a short man reliever. He was a long reliever. He was a spot starter. And most importantly, in 2004, in Game 3, when he was scheduled to start later in the series, he came in and took the hit when the Red Sox lost 19-8, to which made it possible for the Red Sox to come back in that World Series. Um, it's by, great... by, by, we should explain, or you should explain, by taking those innings and giving up his starting role he did something that allowed the Red Sox to win the World Series. Right. He sa- Thank you, Bill. He sacrificed for the team. He sacrificed his own glory so the team could go on. The team did not deplete their bullpen. And when they started to come back in Game 4, they still had um, a lot in their arsenal so that Wakefield um, allowed, in some sense, the Red Sox to be able to make that historic comeback. He was a great pitcher and apparently a humanitarian, was very involved with um, um, the Jimmy Fund, um, you know, just just an all-around good guy, and he's a, he's a loss for the fan base. The other thing about his story I love, I, I was really lucky. I, I knew Phil Negro, who was perhaps the greatest knuckleballer in the history of baseball, or at least right up there, and his story is the same as Tim Wakefield's. They were both I think Tim Wakefield was an infielder. Correct. And uh, he was introduced to this crazy pitch, the knuckleball. Maybe you could talk about the knuckleball and then Tim's use of it. Well, the knuckleball is, you know, um, a fluke pitch, a freak pitch, if you will. It's something that's thrown with the fingertips. 
um, uh, all, all four fingertips holding onto the ball so that the ball is moved by the, the air currents and it therefore moves very erratically. But because it is so erratic, it's extremely hard to control and very, very, very few pitchers master it. And for Wakefield, who was an infielder, it was really his only shot. He didn't have a power arm. So it was only shot at the major leagues. And um, by mastering the knuckleball, he was able to start. And he was an old rookie. I believe he was 26 years old. He started with the Pirates and had a great season for them. And then kind of blew up because that's what knuckleballers do. Sometimes they just get lit up. And I think all of you who've seen Wakefield remember the times where he just didn't have it. His ball just sort of floated up there like a watermelon and people hit rockets off him. But um, he endured and he, he had a long and meaningful career with the Red Sox. There was also another loss of a, well, unthinkably talented infielder in Brooks Robinson. Brooks Robinson, um, I have childhood memories of him from when I was eight years old in the 1970 World Series, Red so uh, uh, Orioles and Reds. Um, it was the first World Series I saw from first pitch to last. And Brooks Robinson, they called him the human vacuum cleaner. He was yeah, just... They called him Hoover. Hoover, yes. He made a play against a lumbering, admittedly, first baseman named Lee May, a power hitter, that I can still picture this day watching him do this, where he went deep into foul territory, way behind third base. And it's not that he was a fast guy or even that he had a great arm. He just he played his position so masterfully without any waste of movement. He fielded the ball. He flipped and threw Lee May out at first base. It was the kind of play that you had to see a second time to believe that it actually happened. And he did that all through the series and start offensively. He wasn't a great offensive player. His, he was slightly above average for his career, but he won either 16 or 17 gold gloves because he really, truly was, without a doubt, the best defensive third baseman in baseball history. But more importantly, Tim Kirkjian wrote a story about him that appeared when Brooks died, saying that there were all sorts of fans in Orioles Nation who named their children Brooks. And he said it was not really because Brooks was such a great player. It's because of what a great person he was. Everybody had stories about him, about how gracious he was, about how kind he was, how he he knew everybody by name. He that, that worked for the organization. He was the kind of player that, that was also a good person. I loved Duke Goldman when he retired. Cal Ripken, another Hall of Famer, um, said of him that what made him a great third baseman was not his athletic prowess, it's what made him a great friend. He would never, ever quit on you. And that's the kind of guy he was. Both uh, Wakefield and Brooks Robinson were extraordinary people in their community. And I, and I think it's worth noting that as well. Wakefield eight times was nominated by the Red Sox for the Roberto Clemente Award, which perhaps you could tell us about, Duke. And he won that award. He, he raised money for hospitals in Boston. He hosted annual celebrity golf tournaments, raising over $10 million for early childhood intervention programs for children with special need. He was active in all sorts of philanthropic endeavors across New England, and this reflected who he was. He didn't have to do any of this. Uh, people still would have loved him, but he did all of this because of who he was. 
So the Roberto Clemente Award is named after the great Pittsburgh Pirate outfielder Roberto Clemente, who gave his life, sacrificed his life, flying a humanitarian mission to bring aid to um, earthquake-devastated Nicaragua um, when he was still active, when he was 38 years old. And this is the kind of person that Roberto was. So Major League Baseball named an annual award. They still have to this day the Roberto Clemente Award, and they nominate a player who is oriented towards humanitarian service to their community from every one of the 30 teams um, the Mets player this year was Francisco Lindor, another Puerto Rican. Well, Tim Wakefield, not only, as, as Bill said, not only was nominated many, many times, but won that award. So it speaks to that he has also has lived that life, and also we lost him tragically at a, sh- a young age. I do think, uh, yeah, I was just going to say Brooks Robinson, I think, was 86. Correct. When he, at the time of his death. and But 57 for t- Tim Wakefield is just... Tragic in every way. Yes. Now, I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, two managers who have left their positions, Terry Francona voluntarily, and Buck Showalter was actually fired by the Mets. Um, Terry Francona is a great hero to Red Sox Nation. We, we loved watching him manage. He brought the Red Sox to their first two World Series wins after 80, an 86-year drought. But it was more than that. Um, Speaking today about good guys, Terry was the ultimate good guy. Everybody liked him. All the players loved him. And what I always remember is the time that the Red Sox pitcher, John Lester, pitched a no-hitter. And Lester pitched it shortly after he'd had a bout with cancer himself. And after Lester had thrown the last pitch, Terry Francona came out to congratulate him and cupped his face with his hands Mm. because he was showing the love he had for his player. Um, he was nicknamed Tito after his father, Tito Francona, uh, whose real name was John, who was uh, a player uh, in the fifties and sixties, and briefly into the seventies. And I, I again, I read about how Terry Francona had gone on a road trip with his dad and remembered it always as the the best experience of his life, spending ten days on the road and being in baseball clubhouses. And the fact that he was nicknamed after his dad speaks to the bond that the two of them had. Now, Buck Showalter was fired by the Mets after two years. He won manager of the year the first year and lost his job the second year. Apparently, he's looking to continue to manage. They say he has a chance of getting the job with the Angels. But he's brought several teams to the brink of winning the World Series and never has actually gotten to the World Series himself. Um, But his players, the Mets players, loved him, even though... He did not bring them to success this year. And Francisco Lindor, in particular, mentioned how blessed he was because for most of his career, he has been managed by Terry Francona and Buck Showalter. And Buck also is just a straightforward, straight-shooting, decent guy who his players appreciate, who's well-known for his strategic um, brilliance, for thinking several moves ahead of what's going on, but mostly is just a good person. And from my standpoint, those are the people I want to celebrate. He was called the chess master by many, but we've talked about the Mets with their largest payroll in baseball and perhaps the greatest disappointment in the 2023 season in in major league baseball. And what do you think? What role, uh, what should we attribute to Buck Showalter in terms of blame 
for that terrible season. Well, of course, he bears responsibility. Everybody in the organization that didn't succeed bears blame. There, there were a lot of unfortunate you know, losses in the player personnel. Um, I always thought maybe he needed to light a fire under the team, and you know, he didn't call them out or read them the riot act, but I think that wasn't who he was anymore. That probably would have been Young Buck as an earlier manager for the Yankees or for the Arizona D-backs. At this point, he thought, I have a veteran team. I don't know what he did behind the scenes, uh, maybe he did speak to them in the clubhouse, but it never came out in the media that he was castigating them for their lack of success. So I don't know if that would have made a difference or not, um, but in the end, what he did was hold the team together. We are talking with Duke Goldman. We are. Uh, I really want to talk to you about the playoffs and uh, what is happening. I'm surprised by a couple of the results early in these these series that are currently going on. I can't wait to talk more with Duke Goldman right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops, go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Real Pickles is a worker cooperative in Greenfield, producing organic, raw, and fermented vegetables. Pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, and more sourced from Northeast Family Farms. Find Real Pickles in the refrigerated section at local markets and at realpickles.com. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales, we're design, we're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Duke uh, Goldman. And, uh, hey, it's baseball playoffs. Season. It is. And we are now in the second round of the playoffs, all four of the wild card series, best of three series were sweeps. Um, and now we're seeing some surprising results in the early games. The Baltimore Orioles have been decimated by the Texas Rangers. Um, they're behind 2-0 in the series, going to Texas for two games. and In a series that whoever wins yes, three games, best of three out five of five. Series, which, which I have issues with. I really think baseball has made a mistake 
Well, they make a lot of mistakes. What a surprise. I think they have too many teams in the playoffs. Quite honestly, I'm forgetting at this point. You know, maybe that speaks to, you know, I'm having senior moments, but I can't even remember every game, and I've watched pretty much every one of them because there's just too many of them. But here's the strange part. I did not think that the Braves were going to have a problem, with the, and I didn't think the Dodgers were going to have a problem at this But stage. they both have problems, which is pitching. Uh, the Dodgers have lost means that the almost teams, everybody. When in you their say too many teams, rotation. these are teams that you would otherwise not have in the playoffs, but they're succeeding. Yeah, I just like to see best of seven, uh, not best of five. I'd like to see that Baltimore, even being behind two nothing, would still have a decent chance. Um, being a historian as I am, I look back to 1955 and 1956. The Brooklyn Dodgers were trailing two nothing. In 1955, came back and won their only world championship. The next year, they were leading 2-0, and the New York Yankees came back and won the championship. When you're behind 2-0 in a five-game series, you have a chance, but not a very good one. And, and a slightly better-than-average pitcher pitches the perfect game, it kind of helps. Well, sure. Sure, absolutely. Don Larson pitches a perfect game in Game 5, but, you know... For this trip down memory lane, 1956 (laughs) has been brought to you by Geritol. Bill Newman. (laughs) I wasn't alive then, but, you know... I I remember it well, frankly. (laughs) I remember it as well. I would like to see that baseball is going to move to 32 teams. It's going to happen in the next two or three years. They're going to have 16 teams in each league. I would like to see them move to four divisions, four division winners... And then they have playoff rounds. One less playoff round, and each round is best of seven. I think that would be the best solution to the current situation where they play three games in the first round, five games in the second round, and they don't get to the championship round. Until then, they do not play seven games. But, Duke Goldman, we've discussed the new rules which were in effect this year in order to basically enhance the fan base. And these extra teams, especially the play-in teams, they enhance the fan base, do they not? Sure, they do. I, I can't dispute that. It may, keeps more fans interested. On the other hand, division races, which used to matter, don't mean anything anymore. If you had a situation where you had to win your division in order to get into the playoffs, there would be an, another kind of excitement. Yes, there'd be less teams that would qualify, but there would be um, an energy behind that. So it's kind of a trade-off, and I think it would make the postseason better. Will Major League Baseball do it? Absolutely not. They don't listen to anybody else's ideas. They have their own idea, and their idea is maximize the revenue for the most teams by getting the most teams into the playoffs, thereby, in my view, cheapening the playoffs and making them less interesting. And making them less interesting for the country, which I think is the issue. I mean, I remember a time when it's the, oh, my God, it's the World Series. You had to run home if it was in the afternoon to watch it. You had to turn on your radio at work. I mean, I I remember... And everyone did. Yes. and, And everyone did. But here... I was struck this year by the Red Sox announcers and the Yankee announcers to some degree as well, saying, and here we are, it's September, and if they only do X, Y, and Z, they could make it to be the third wildcard team. I mean, they're 18 games out of first place in their own division, and we're, what we're looking at is the third wildcard team as if that somehow is a victory. It's a little bit nuts. We're looking at Arizona, which, which, which is in a good position right now. They just decimated the Dodgers, and I was just looking at an article saying, oh, you know, you know, Arizona, they only won 84 games. Well, yeah, you know, that's all they won. And they had part of a good season and part of a disastrous season. They had a stretch where they went 7-25, and 25, and yet they're in the playoffs. And they could dispatch the Dodgers in three games, potentially. So... 
you know, why, why do we end up with teams like the Florida Marlins who've never won a division title but who have won two World Series? We do because of all these rounds of playoffs and wildcard teams. And I, I, I think we don't end up often with the best team winning the World Series as a result. Yeah, I don't even think we're close sometimes. I mean, there is an old adage. I guess adages are always old. But that said, <laughs> that it's not, it's not the best team for the year that wins the World Series. It's the best team in October or now November. And that's true. But you still, to make it interesting and have this be a national sport yet again, you require having the best teams or nearly the best teams in that competition. And I think... We're failing at that. I think so. I mean, I, I, I think Major League Baseball is, and if anything, they'll probably add more playoff teams. And then they become like hockey and basketball, and they're, they're, you know, baseball is removing their elements of uniqueness that they had, and I think that's unfortunate. That doesn't mean that the games are, themselves are not interesting. Um, you know, I have enjoyed watching them. I've enjoyed watching the Texas Rangers play really well. The game between the Rangers and the Orioles, which ended up 11-8 to eight yesterday, was pretty interesting. The Orioles didn't quit, and they, they had a three-run homer and had a chance to win in the ninth inning. Um, and uh, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with the Braves and the Phillies. You know, the Braves, I... Everybody said we're the odds-on favorite to win the World Series, but uh, the Phillies won the first game, and um, you know it's it's a really good matchup uh, tonight. Uh, the Phillies are pitching Zach Wheeler, who's a great pitcher, and the Braves coming with Max Fried, who is also an excellent pitcher. And I think this game is going to be critical in that <coughs> series. So there's a lot to watch. There is a lot to watch. You know, I always think feel sanctimonious when people ask who you're rooting for, and I always come up with this somewhat uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe sanctimonious is exactly the word when I, I say I just want to watch good baseball. And I do. I love to watch really good baseball. And sometimes the hottest team isn't playing the best fundamental baseball. The teams, the Braves are a really fantastic team. Really? Well, let me ask you both this question because that strikes me as really odd. When I watch these games, I'm rooting for one of the teams. I pick a team to root for for one reason or another, and that keeps me involved. You're saying you just watch the game and it's all interesting without having a, a, a dog in that fight? Really? I don't know. For me, the truth is that's part of my problem this year is that I'm having trouble picking who I want to win because none of the teams is all that compelling for me. So I'm, I don't know how to pick between Texas. I want Baltimore to win because they're a good story, I guess. Yeah, but. I want Baltimore to win. And, and, I, and I want, uh, what's that team from Texas that cheated the way to the World Series? Oh, oh yeah. you want the Astros <laughs> to, to lose. lose. Right. That's important. Of course. Both of those things are important well, to see, me. Well, see, if the Yankees were in, even though I'm glad that they're not, I would have a rooting interest because I'd be rooting against them. But I don't have that. So And the Mets and Red Sox are not in, so I don't have teams that I really root for. So I don't know. Well, let me go my... back to Bill's question and, and, and your comment, which is that this is entertainment. So if you're going to watch... Uh, a ballet, you want to see the best dancers perform their best performance. Yeah, but they're ballet. But they're not. They're not competing on the stage, and and this is a competition. Someone wins and someone loses the game. And for me, it matters more, and I feel more engaged if I'm rooting for one team or another. And there's always some ra reason, whether it's rational or not, to root for one team or another. You guys don't do that. Well, I, it, it sounds like Duke does. I just I normally say, do. Yeah, there no, we go. I, I, well, I want to resort again to my sanctimony. Because the truth is, I want to see great baseball, and I will enjoy it, even if I'm not rooting for a team. You know, but, if I no, see no, wait, great but confess, baseball, do you root for one team or the other? Usually not. 
What's also great is to watch these great athletes. I was reading a, an issue of Baseball America about tools, and Ronald Acuna for the Braves has thrown a ball they've measured at 105.8 <laughs> miles an hour. Now, when you see players like that, and if they have a chance to throw the ball, I always go back to, we mentioned Roberto Clemente making throws in the 1971 World Series that were the most amazing throws I've ever seen in my life. That's what sticks in my mind. I love you, Duke Goldman. You're not talking about his bat, which was incredible this year, about his legs, which were incredible this year. You're talking about his arm. And I love watching a great throw. So that's part of what makes it exciting. Oh, sure. I, I agree with that. But if he makes a great throw and you're rooting for his team, that makes it even more fantastic. And if you are rooting for the other team and he makes a great throw, you say, wow, that was deserved, whatever happened. This is what I think, and it's parochial. Back in the day when the team, you know, when the Boston Red Sox, they were kids from best Boston playing you know, in the, in the red stockings, right? But now when every team is owned by a multinational or a, a gazillionaire, and so I just can't get behind, it's like a kind of nationalism, my team right or wrong. It's my corporation's better than your corporation. Well, it's like what Jerry Seinfeld said, you're rooting for laundry, really, not, not for your local player, you know, because they're not really local most of the time. And But nonetheless, I mean, I'm always going to root for the Mets, because I've been a Mets fan since I was seven years old. And I'm, any player who automatically puts him, automatically, once they put a Mets uniform on, they're my guy. So I, I'm more that way. I like to have teams that I'm rooting for or against. I was rooting against the Braves, but it does seem like they're not doing the tomahawk chop anymore, which takes away my animus towards them. Chief Nakahoma yeah. is no longer with them. Yeah. Meanwhile, speaking of laundry, Duke Goldman is wearing... A shirt which proclaims in the center of a baseball, life is good. Doesn't get any better than that, Duke. I agree. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I, I love listening to you and your reflections on baseball Thank and um, those giants whose lives were lost. Uh, they'll be in our minds. I'll always remember Brooks Robinson and Tim, Tim Wakefield. Thank you so much for joining us. And we, when we come back, we're going to be talking with Megan Zinn and a special guest right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Amherst could be getting a new five-story building downtown. Developer Barry Roberts is proposing the mixed-use building on two parcels on South Pleasant Street. Part of the plans would include removal of the rear L of the former Hastings building, which has been used for storage for more than a century. According to the Gazette, Amherst College has plans to lease the Hastings building and open a college retail store. An October 12th hearing is scheduled with the Historical Commission to talk about demolition of the current building. Dozens of healthcare workers walked the picket line outside of Cooley Dickinson Hospital on Northampton Friday. Members of the Union 1199 SEIU held signs and chanted as they rallied outside the hospital. The union said they've been working for all of 2023 without a contract. A vehicle rollover on Route 5 in Bernardston Saturday night left one woman with minor injuries. Route 5 in the area of 546 Brattleboro Road was temporarily closed when Bernardston Fire and Police Departments responded to the vehicle rollover at approximately 8.45 p.m. The town of Athol is receiving state aid to help fill vacant storefronts. 
Their central commercial district, which runs north and south on Main Street, holds approximately 20 storefronts that have been vacant for at least a year. In an effort to fill those storefronts, the town's downtown vitality committee worked with the assistant planner and grants administrator to bring in grant assistance in the form of a rent rebate grant to help with renovations, equipment, and storefront improvements. The town approved a $20,000 match for the state-funded grant. Joan Holliday, WHMP News. For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be breezy. Highs 58 to 62. Tonight, partly cloudy. Overnight lows 38 to 42. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny. Slight chance for a shower. Highs in the lower 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. Cooperatives are locally owned and controlled. The members own it or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. Our Family Farms Milk, local, family-run dairy farms that care about the health of their cows, your family, and our community. Now super fresh with their on-farm creamery. Ask for Our Family Farms products at your local retailer. Thoughts the way you walk, whisper and blow. I could write a preface on how we met, so the world would. It is Monday. It is time for Megan Zinn to introduce us to her latest, uh, what, r- ruminations, uh, reflections about the literary world. The literary world. Well, today I am going to be talking with a writer, which is one, oh, my favorite thing on the show. Um, and my guest is writer Amy Chua. Welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for having me, Megan. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so Amy is the author of five works of nonfiction, including the bestseller memoir, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And the historical thriller, The Golden Gate, is her fiction debut. And she's also a law professor at Yale. Um, and Amy will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about The Golden Gate on Tuesday, October 17th, next week at 7 p.m. And you can find more info on their website, Odyssey 
bks.com. So Amy Chua, tell us um, first about the Golden Gate. What's the, what can you tell us about the plot as, as much as you can without spoiling anything? Great. So the plot idea just hit me when I was in my parents' house three years ago, and it just opens with a grandmother from one of San Francisco's most established, oldest families being told um, on the first page that one of her three granddaughters is a murderer, but they don't know which one. And that's how the book opens. And there's a great twist that I'm mm -hmm. not going to give away. <laughs> of course not. Um, yeah, and, and the, the, the book actually comes from a weird coincidence. My parents, who are 87 years old, I'm actually in their house now, mm -hmm. currently live in Madame Chiang Kai-shek's former house wow. um, in Berkeley, California. And for reasons nobody knows to this day, Madame Chiang Kai-shek lived by herself in Berkeley from 1943 to 1944, um, in the middle of the Second World War. And there were rumors that she was having an affair with a presidential candidate. Um, this is Wendell Wilkie, mm -hmm. who uh, almost defeated FDR. So I spun a whole historical novel um, out of those real life facts. Yeah. Um, and this is also where I grew up. Yeah. So tell us for any listeners who don't know, who is Madame Chiang Kai-shek? Madame Chiang Kai-shek was the first lady of China. Um, so in the middle of the Second World mm -hmm. War, before the communists took over, General Chiang Kai-shek was a well, pretty brutal mm -hmm. autocratic dictator, but he was the capitalist. And uh, Mao Zedong and uh, Chiang Kai-shek were fighting for control, and obviously Mao won. But she was the first woman to address both um, houses of Congress, oh, actually. Wow. Yeah. And she came to this country. She was an incredible woman. I wrote five biographies of her um, and uh, yeah, so she's a she's a minor background character in, in mm -hmm. my book. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and I, I've got to say, when I got the book, I was like, okay, I've got to read a few chapters before the show. Um, and then I read the first chapter and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to finish this book. <laughs> um, it's like oh, really from you. it's really grabbed from the very beginning. Um, can you read us a little bit of the book? Okay, I will read um, something from just the very beginning. Um, so the book is situated in 1944 the San Francisco Bay Area, when, oh boy, San Francisco was a totally different place. Mm -hmm. And the class uh, issues were really stark. So this is um, Friday, March 10th, 1944. When I was a kid, before they took my dad away in 1931, we used to play ball on a patchy field next to the municipal dump. Home plate was across the road from the three mile long Berkeley Pier, where trucks and autos would line up for the ferry to San Francisco. I always looked out for the cars with New York plates, weather beaten and mud crusted because they'd been on the road for weeks. These were people who had crossed the country on the Lincoln Highway. The Lincoln Highway was the first coast to coast road in America. It started at the corner of Broadway and 42nd Street in Times Square, New York. And from there intrepid motorists in their Fords and Studebakers would set out on the 3000 mile journey to San Francisco, guided by rough maps and by red, white, and blue signposts along the way. The highway, really a series of interconnected country byways, traversed the nation in the shortest possible route, avoiding big cities like Chicago or Denver in favor of small towns like Fort Wayne and Cedar Rapids, Omaha and Cheyenne. People had to get out of their cars when they came to streams or river crossings so they could wade in first to make sure the water wasn't too deep. They also had to bring camping gear in the deserts of Wyoming and Utah and Nevada, they'd likely pass more than a night or two without a roof over their heads. My dad used to say that someday he'd take us all on the Lincoln Highway in the opposite direction to see New York City and the Statue of Liberty. Never happened. 
Thank you for reading that. Um, my guest is writer Amy Chua. Um, so you, you already told us what sparked the idea from the book, your parents living um, in the home where Madame Chiang Kai-shek had lived uh, for a, a short period of time during World War II um, in Berkeley. Um, but um, what, sparked, what sparked you to want to write fiction? You've written um, five books of nonfiction. You're a law professor. What made you want to write fiction? Well, you're not going to believe this, but I have always wanted to write fiction. This goes back actually to the kind of uh, Chinese immigrant um, raising I had. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was really little, my parents were very, very strict. And reading was pretty much the only fun pastime that we yeah. had. So I was a huge bookworm. And I would always walk my sisters and I to the El Cerrito Public Library. And I would come back arms loaded uh, and they were all mystery books. You know, ah, I read every okay. Nancy Drew book, then every Agatha Christie book, then every Victoria Holt book. Um, and for me, I actually tried when I was about in my late 20s, when I was stuck in a corporate law firm, miserable and trying to get out. I tried to write a, a novel then, but I just couldn't come up with a good plot. Um, and there's a kind of quirky story. I, I'm a weird lawyer. Like, I don't actually write about corporate law or tax law. I'm just not interested. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always written about um, uh, more things like the dangers of globalization or excessive um, markets and democratization. Um, so I, I kind of pivoted away from Wall Street and started writing all these books about foreign policy and always wanted to do this. And then write COVID actually helped me because ah, okay. the idea for this plot well, it hit me when I was about in my parents' house about three years ago. I have this plot, and then suddenly the pandemic hit, and I was just in my house, you know, mm -hmm. and I had time. Um, and it, it was the most fun thing I've ever done, Megan. I, it, it, it was a challenge, um, but I have been writing about political polarization and tribalization in America. And I have to tell you, it is so much more fun and uplifting <laughs> to write about murder. Murder, <laughs> so murder, murder. And at a time in the United States where things were um, very frightening and very polarized, a different time in the United States. But oh. um, but yeah, I can imagine um, the fictionalized version of it is more fun. And you answered my question about why a crime thriller, because it sounds like that's what you've been reading um, from the get-go. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the character, uh, the main character, and it's uh, primarily told in first person by Al Sullivan, who is a police detective. Um, and his voice, and I love his voice, and also the character of Miriam, who is his niece, is his 11-year-old niece. And can, She's fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about how they developed for you? Yeah, so um, so again, the book is set in 1944 Bay Area. I, I grew up in a dinky small town called El Cerrito, uh, which is like where I put my protagonist, uh, Detective Al Sullivan, is also from there. Uh, Megan, at first, I wanted to make my character a, an Asian American woman mm -hmm. um, because I thought I could relate. But when I did historical research, I could not do that because yeah. there were zero women or minorities on the Berkeley police force in 1944. This was the time of the Japanese internment. There were racial restrictions. You know, only whites could live in the Berkeley Hills. So I chose to do something um, really interesting. You know, I've always loved these iconic detectives mm -hmm. in the 1920s and 30s, you know, the kind of Sam Spade right, and right. Dashiell Hammett characters. But I wanted to update that because, oh my God, they were always like, I mean, they were cool, hard-boiled guys, mm -hmm. but it, they were always white males, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so when you meet Detective Al Sullivan, at first he seems like that, yeah. like this tough guy, noir character. But you quickly learn that his mother is um, uh, 
from the Dust Bowl, came in the Depression. She's oaky, poor white. And then you learn that on his father's side, he's actually half Mexican and half Jewish. And so he's a light-skinned, mixed-race, white-passing man. And I have always been interested in these issues of racial passing or mm -hmm. what younger people today call code switching because I'm personally so familiar with it. This is the phenomenon where people from marginalized or untraditional groups, whether it's because of race or accent or gender, um, suppress aspects mm -hmm. of their identity um, because they feel that's what it takes to rise in American society. So we learned that his real name mm -hmm. is actually Alejo Gutierrez, yeah. but he chooses for reasons that he doesn't admit fully to himself to go by his mom's last name. So we know him as Al Sullivan, but he struggles with all this inner insecurity and ambivalence. And honestly, I know he seems very different because he's like a male, you know, noir detective, but there's a lot of myself in him. Mm -hmm. I remember, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of struggling to suppress parts of myself because yeah. I thought, I, I can't be fully myself and, and survive in the society. Yeah. And um, as somebody myself who is Jewish, I was really uh, intrigued by the fact that Al was, his father was Mexican and Jewish. Um, and I was intrigued by um, why you decided to bring that, um, that little element of history about, about Jews in Mexico into your story. I'm so glad you asked. No one else has ever. <laughs> so first of all, my, my husband is Jewish and my kids are half Jewish and mm. we, we raise our kids Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, but this actually goes back to my first nonfiction book, uh, actually my first book, World on Fire, where I wrote about what I called market dominant minorities. Um, these are small minorities like the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia or Philippines that are only like 3% of the population, but very dominant um, and in many ways very resented. And I actually learned in research, you know, I studied about the countries like Mexico and Ecuador, how the wealthy people in Latin America are often these light-skinned European featured people. Um, and I, I, you know, kind of look at all those racial and ethnic issues. But I learned during that time that there are significant Jewish populations mm -hmm. all throughout Latin America. They came as peddlers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, many of them rose through discrimination and persecution to become some of the most successful people in Latin American countries, including the president of Ecuador, yeah. you know, for a couple of times. Wow, so, so I, I that. that that taps into yeah, taps into kind of historical research that I'm familiar with. Interesting. Well, we're going to um, head into a break now, um, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Amy Chua, author of the novel *The Golden Gate*. The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gay. The glory that was Rome is of another day. I've been terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan. I'm going home to my city by the bay. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 
What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem, using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. I am just so enjoying eavesdropping this conversation between Megan Zim and Zin and uh, Amy Chua. And uh, Amy Chua, I just love listening. I think I'm going to take your course. You're just really good to listen <laughs> Thank to. Thank you. I'd love to have you. <laughs> That's fantastic. And as we said, my guest is Amy Chua, and uh, we're talking about her book, The Golden Gate, which is a uh, crime thriller. And Amy will be at Odyssey Bookshop to talk about the, her book um, on Tuesday, October 17th at 7. You can find out more on their website at odysseybks.com. Um, and I'm going to start off after the break with probably a ridiculously large question. Um, what, what are, you know, the book takes place in 1944 um, in the midst of World War II in San Francisco, which was an incredibly complex place, at the, always is, but particularly at that time. Um, and what are, what are some of the key parallels you see between that time in history and what's going on in the U.S. now? Well, this is crazy. I, I didn't even realize that because I grew up there and um, I, you know, when you grow up in a place, sometimes you end up being more ignorant. But after uh, Pearl Harbor, where our entire Navy was basically taken out, mm-hmm. you know, we had no ships in the United States. So, uh, and it would have taken too long to build a ship in, in, you know, New York and ship it all the way to the, uh, to the, you know, to the Pacific Coast. So overnight, the San Francisco Bay Area became the largest shipbuilding center in the history of the world. They were churning out like a battleship every four days based on wow. Henry Ford's techniques. And that's when San Francisco actually started to look like what it looks like today. It was the first time that African-Americans came in significant numbers to the Bay Area. Poor whites poured in. Um, And so this created this, like all these immigrants poured in and so much class tension and people were sleeping like, you know, in their cars or there'd be somebody who rented a little room and they'd be the night, they'd sleep there during the night and the other person would sleep there during the day. But um, the parallels are depressing. there was the Japanese internment where liter- human, I mean, American citizens were literally caged, which mm-hmm. sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't just the Japanese. Anybody with an Asian face were suspected of being spies. A lot of anti-Asian sentiment, which is also all too familiar. 
years before 1944, I did not know this, but up to a million Mexican Americans were forcibly deported um, during the Depression. You know, people were like, they're taking all our jobs, we got to get rid of them, you know, scapegoating. And so for me, it was, you know, it's all a backdrop, Megan, because again, I just wanted this first and foremost to be fun. Yeah. You know, because I usually yeah. write about political tribalism, but it's all there as a backdrop. Very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people had to suppress their identities. Two of my historical characters, Julia Morgan, one of the most famous women architects in America, and Dr. Mom uh, Margaret Chung, the first Chinese American um, woman doctor. Both were almost certainly lesbians and they had to suppress their, mm -hmm. you know, they had to, they mm -hmm. just couldn't show that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it was fun, lightly tapping to a lot of similar themes, but um, not in, you know, this, it's, it's just easier because yeah, it was historical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'll just to uh, finish up, um, your, the book includes a lot of rich descriptions of the architecture and the natural environment of Berkeley and Fran San Francisco, which is a, a fun element um, to see a little bit what it looked like then. Um, what, so it made me wonder, um, having grown up there, what are your favorite, what are your favorite places in, in Berkeley or San Francisco? If, if it, natural yeah, or physical or, or built? When I was little, because again, we didn't get to live in San Francisco, so there was a lot of Al Sullivan mm -hmm. in me. It was the glorious, rich city across the yeah, bay, yeah. you know. And uh, we actually went every Sunday to Chinatown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have these great memories of going my family oh, yeah. and, you know, eating dim sum. On more relevant to the book, the Clare so my parents moved to a nicer place after I went to college, of course. But the Claremont Hotel is where the book, the murders in the book mm -hmm. are situated. It's up in the Berkeley Hills. And there's a real life ghost story associated with it, which I build into my yeah. book. You know, in the 30s, a little a six-year-old girl was found dead in the laundry chute. And it is said to this day that her ghost haunts the Claremont. And I was giving a book talk in Portland, and a woman in the audience said, I was just at the Claremont. The ghost exists. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And it's a beautiful, it's a spectacularly beautiful, uh, you know, white pal alabaster palace in the, in the sky is the way I just mm -hmm. describe it. Uh, yeah. So, so those are two extremes. Chinatown that is just gritty, yeah. um, you know, yeah. and the Claremont. Yeah, and the Claremont. Well, thank you so much. Um, my guest has been um, writer Amy Chu, and we've talked about her book, The Golden Gate, um, which is um, a really fun and gripping read. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. Amy Chu, uh, just listening to you, you're obviously a great storyteller. And uh, it sounds like a, <laughs> like a must. So she's going to be at the Odyssey when? Odyssey on October 17th at 7 p.m. It sounds like a must attend. Thank yes. you, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. Um, Bill, we, I don't think that we can end the show without talking a little bit about um, the nightmare that's happening in the Middle East, the uh, invasion by Hamas of Israel and the retaliatory efforts by Israel. As of uh, this morning, I think there's about 700 bodies counted in Israel uh, dead. And uh, I think in the Gaza Strip, I think that we have something like uh, 500 counted dead, countless people homeless, counted pe countless people injured. I, I think what I want to just remind people, Bill and I were in Bahrain, um, I think in 2006 or seven, and I was introduced to the Gulf News. It's an English language newspaper that sort of told the news from an Arab perspective. And, um, and we were all familiar with Al Jazeera, not Al Jazeera America, but Al Jazeera Global. And um, it, I'm just encouraging people to read it. I, there's no way that I will ever justify what happened this weekend and those uh, somewhere between 2,200 and 5,000 bombs that were rained upon 
Israel during a holy day. But um, you get a different story. We keep listening about the story between Russia and the Ukraine about whether or not this counteroffensive is justified when it invades the outskirts of Moscow uh, and the like. Well, much of the Arab world sees what happened, this invasion by Hamas, as a counteroffensive in much the same way that Ukraine is seen as counteroffensive with respect to Russia. Um, we have now uh, two in every five Palestinian men who live in the West Bank and Gaza have spent time in an Israeli prison. At any given moment, there's over 5,200, usually a, at least a, a minimum of 170 children imprisoned by Israel. Um, it's something that just breeds a level of hostility. There are 19 prisons. There have been 12,000 children under the age of 18 between the two infantadas. Um, from the West Bank alone that have been imprisoned. And uh, as somebody who's represented Guantanamo detainees, we're really concerned about right now the 14 men who are going to be held indefinitely without charge or trial in Guantanamo. Well, there's 1,264 indefinite detainees being held by Israel that uh, their treatment has been so bad they can't be tried because the evidence won't be admitted because of torture. That's 1,264. So... There's a different story, none of which will ever justify the bombing bill, but it's a different story if you read these different news sources. Well, in terms of news sources, while we've been on, the latest news includes that Israel's defense minister ordered a complete siege, that's in quote of the long blockade Gaza Strip on Monday, as its forces battled Palestinian militants. Defense minister said that no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel would be allowed into Gaza. That's uh, the Gaza Strip houses 2.3 million souls. Um, I don't know how we're ever going to recover from uh, this weekend. It's it's a horror we're all going to be living with for a very long time. Um, uh, Bill, we're going to have to talk about this more in future shows because it's going to be haunting us for years to come. Meanwhile, notwithstanding that dark note, I do hope everybody enjoys uh, the rest of today. And uh, thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I couldn't talk about it. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. 